Welcome to the Significant Women Podcast. This is a podcast that's focused on bringing out the very best in women in all walks of life, in all seasons of life, and in all aspects of life. My name is Carol McLeod, and I hope that you'll join me every week for stirring conversation about what it means to be a woman of significance at this moment in history. It might not be as hard to live a significant life as you think it is. Well, I love a good story, don't you? I hope that in every interview on the Significant Women podcast, that you'll be captured by the heart of an ordinary woman who chose to live a significant story in spite of pain and disappointment. I have to tell you, I have been just giddy with excitement over the significant woman that you are going to meet on today's podcast. Her name is Sarah Sundin, and she's a best-selling author. Sarah writes historical fiction that is set in the romantic, dashing, and adventurous era of World War II. But Sarah is not only a novelist, she is also a wife, a mom, a teacher, and a passionate pursuer of Christ. I've read Sarah's books for years, and so when she and I began to cultivate a sweet friendship just through emails and online, I was thrilled to my toes. This girl, Sarah Sundin, knows how to make a character come to life, how to make a storyline thrive, and how to develop a written conversation that literally becomes life-changing. But Sarah's heart is the best part of her. She is gentle and unassuming, and yet is now spending her life encouraging others through the genre of historical fiction. You are going to just love her. So let's lean in and listen to the heart and wisdom of Sarah Sundin. Well, as y'all know, my guest today is Sarah Sundin. Now, Sarah, you are somebody that I have respected and admired from afar for several years now. Um, I don't know how long it's been, but we've had a little bit of friendship going on over, you know, the internet. So I'm delighted to have you today. Thank you for taking time to talk to us. I'm delighted to be here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Well, I just want to start by saying, tell us about you. Like, what do you do on a normal day? Tell us about your family and your pets and what kind of tea you drink. Just share with us who Sarah Sundin really is. It's actually kind of boring. (laughs) (laughs) I live in Northern California in a very typical suburb. I'm married and my husband and I have three grown children. They're in their 20s. So the oldest two have flown the nest. The youngest flew away for the Navy, and then now he's flown back home, and he's taking classes at the community college online. So we actually are, have three in the home right now, which I love. I love having him home right now. It's a joy. And we just adopted a rescue dog in September, and he is a Jindo. It's a Korean breed, and he's gorgeous, and he's sweet, and he's like all rescue dogs, like so thankful to have a home. And he loves his walks. So, I mean, he's he's helped me lose the last five pounds that I've been trying to lose for the past five years. So <laughs> he likes speed walks, not just regular walks, speed walks. So that that's a that's something I get to do every day. And um, oh, in my spare time, I write novels. <laughs> yes, you do. Great novels, let me just say. <laughs> 
So Sarah, you are an author, you're a writer, and we're going to get to that later. We're going to just set that aside for a minute, but I can't wait to get there. But you know, everybody's story is significant. I love how it says in the Bible that they overcame by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And so we use the word story in place of the word testimony. It's just a new word for what our testimony is. But what what has your story been? Like, when did you meet Christ? And what, what have been some of the things that you've gone through that now have built a foundation for you to speak into other people's lives? Well, I'm, I'm what you would call a good little church girl. I was raised going to Sunday school. Um, I can't remember not going to church, though. Apparently, my family didn't start until I was three. But, yeah, just, you know, I, I memorized all the verses. I got all the attendance awards. That was in, in one church. And then when I was in fourth grade, we went to a musical being performed by some high schoolers at a different church. And I'm, I'm still not sure why we went to this. There were, there were some people, my, my parents were in a small group. Some people in their small group were kind of drifting toward that church. So anyway, we went to this musical put on by high schoolers at this other church. And those teenagers presented the gospel with such joy on their faces. And you know, when you're a 10 year old girl, there's no one you look up to as quite as much as a teenage girl. And these girls, I was like, I want to be like them. And what was it about them that I liked was this joy of Jesus. And then suddenly all those verses I'd memorized, all this, all this talk about having Jesus in your heart, which never quite made sense to me. All of a sudden it was like, you know, the light bulb went on like, that's what they're talking about, having Jesus in your heart. And so I accepted Christ that day. And so did my, my, my sister, who's a year younger than I. She was sitting right next to me. We both accepted Christ that day. So that, was, that tells me something about their testimony. And it also, I just use that story. I teach Sunday school now. And I just use that for my kids. Like, you know what? You can have a powerful testimony as a young person. You don't have to be you know, a pastor. I mean, these were teenage girls who were just singing and sharing stories. And I wanted to be like them and that Jesus used that. So um, I'd like to say it's been all, you know, rose petals since then, but it hasn't. Um, I went through high school, very active in my church youth group, went away to college and was tired of it. I was unpopular. I never had a boyfriend. I was convinced it was because I was goody two-shoes. And so I decided that maybe it was time to not be a goody two-shoes so that I could actually have friends and and have a boyfriend and maybe find somebody who would marry me if if I wasn't a goody two-shoes. Very skewed thinking. But so I just kind of left God behind. I told myself I was taking a vacation from God as if it was like a great place. You know, now it was like it it was a bad place. But now I call them my stupid ears. But but it was really, I, I don't regret it. And it's an odd thing to say because I don't regret it because when I came out of those years and I realized, you know, kind of like when you walk out of the, when you've been in the darkness for a while and you walk outside and the sun hurts and I you know went back to church for the first time and the sunlight hurt and tried to read the Bible and the Bible hurt. I, I could barely read more than two verses at a time. It was so painful to me. And I was just overcome with this knowledge of my own sinfulness. Good little 10-year-old Sarah didn't see herself as a sinner. I was a good little girl. I did what my mommy said. I was the one who always raised her hand in, in class. Yeah, I never got in trouble. So I thought I was all that. 
um, 22-year-old Sarah knew darn well that she was a sinner. And looking back now, I can see that 10-year-old Sarah was definitely a sinner too. Self-righteousness, judgmentalism. I lied. I gossiped about the girls who weren't very good. So there were a lot of nasty, jealousy, envy, all those hidden sins that we church people indulge in, but might not see ourselves as sinners. So going through those years, first of all, showed me my own sinfulness and my deep need for God. So that was crucial in my development as a Christian, but it also gave me great compassion for those who live in sin, which I didn't have before. I, you know, they were them. They were, you know, those, those kids, those ones who, who they can't listen, they can't obey. And suddenly I realized I am them. We are all them. And that was just a crucial thing. And, you know, for a novelist, it allowed me to write different because I could write from the perspective of somebody from who's in sin um, with great compassion because I've been there. You know, Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and I like to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm right up there with you. And, and, I, and I'm not just, you know, 22-year-old Sarah who was doing things that, you know, good Christian girls don't, but also, you know, good Christian Sarah who was self-righteous and judgmental. That, that's chief of sinner, too. So, um, so yeah, I came back to, to God, slow, painful, and then I had to deal with shame because when you come back into the light, you, every, every once in a while, something would pop up and, and just like, uh, you know, just, I guess, a slam in my chest, like, oh, I can't believe I did that. And being struck over and over and over again with my sinfulness. And I really wallowed in shame. And it, that was actually a fairly long process for me to deal with the shame and accepting the fullness of Jesus's forgiveness. It wasn't, it wasn't like I had to remember every sin and then be forgiven for every sin. It was once for all. He had already forgiven me when I was 10 for those sins that I committed in college, as well as for everything I'm committing today. He'd already forgiven those. And you know, finally, he, he just said to me, Sarah, do you believe me? I'm like, oh, yes, Jesus, I believe you. Like, do you believe that I have forgiven you? So why do you keep coming back to me? about those things that I've already forgiven. So I really worked through that. And that that actually led me into ministry because um, at that point, that was 2000, 2001 was my low point. And, and then God gave it, you know, once I worked through that, suddenly it came to me and like, and I never really... I had just started writing novels, just started writing novels at that point. And actually, the writing of the novels had kind of shown me some of this. It was a long process. <laughs> anyway, I hadn't really started teaching yet. And suddenly, this it just came together to me as a workshop. You know, I had my intro. I had my three major points and a takeaway. And I'd never taught before. And like, what do I do with this? And about that time, I was more active in women's ministries. And women in that, who were my teachers, kept saying, Sarah, you're a teacher. And I kept saying, no, I'm not. I'm not a teacher. I, I, I don't know enough about God. I'm, and I keep saying to myself behind my back, if they knew what I'd done in college, they would definitely not be saying that I should be teaching because they would say, oh, no, that disqualifies her because, you know, that only good Christian people can teach. Um, of course, they know that I've been doing this long enough, like, oh, no, <laughs> that, that's, that's so far from the truth. But at that time, because I was looking at these women, and they were just so perfect. They glowed. And I knew I wasn't like them. But as I got to know them too, I knew they each had their own places of sin and hurt and pain. And God used that. But anyway, at that point, so they were saying, you should be teaching, you should be teaching. 
And I had to step out in obedience to teach. And so 2003, it was a pivotal year for me. Um, I got my first feedback that was positive saying, yeah, you're on the right track. I was still many years from publication, but it was, it was like, you are to become a novelist. And I stepped forward and started teaching Sunday school to fourth and fifth graders. And I started teaching um, women's ministries and first as kind of a small group facilitator. And then I started teaching classes and I'm still with those ministries today. I still teach fourth, fifth grade Sunday school, which I love with a passion. I miss my kids so much. I can't wait to not teach them on video, but to actually get back in the classroom with them. And I'm actually, what I was doing before I was on the talk with you, I'm preparing my, um, my lecture for women's ministries, which I'm teaching next week. So those are my two great ministry passions. And I love them because they ground me. There is nothing more humbling than teaching fourth graders. Because <laughs> they tell it is. And if you're not clear, they tell you. And so I, 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 just, I just adore those ministries. And, you know, they build me as a writer and they build me as a human being. And they allow me to give back to my local church, which I love so much. Yeah. Yeah. To serve where you are. Well, yeah. I've got to ask you a question because I always listen with the ears of the listeners, people who are listening. And I'm thinking about moms right now whose children have gone off to college and have left their faith. And so your story brings hope, Sarah. So I have to ask you a question. What was it? Was there an event that brought you back to Christ? Was it a slow coming alive again? What was it that convinced you Christianity is true and I want to serve him after those years of yeah. walking away from or taking a vacation from God is what yeah, you said. Yeah. Ironically, I never, never left believing in Jesus and believing in Christianity. I just didn't want him telling me what to do with my life. <laughs> so I believed in Jesus. And I fully, at that point, I, I didn't understand, um, you know, once and for all salvation. So I firmly believed that I had given up my salvation and that if I were to die at that point, that I would be going to hell. I was willing to do that for that time, which is sad. But I was dating a, a man who was uh, not a good man at all. He was a horrible person. And at one point, I found myself saying, I don't want this man raising my children because I didn't want, didn't want them, him giving them his values. I knew at that point I wanted my children raised as I was in the faith. And that kind of slapped me and like, okay, first of all, if you don't want this man raising your children and you want children, then you need to be out of this relationship which was something I did. But also, like, if you want your children raised in the church, then you should be in the church. So it was, that, was, that was not a good reason, completely good reason to go back, but it was part of it. I was like, I, I knew I wanted to get back at some point, but that was, that was kind of a crucial moment then. And also, at that point, I remember at one point, I was at a fraternity party and people were just sloppy drunk everywhere. And they were telling stupid jokes and laughing at themselves. And I was not drinking and I was looking at this is supposed to be fun. And I'm like, this isn't fun. And, rem and remembering back to my high school youth group parties where we were playing Uno and drinking Diet Coke and eating potato chips 
And we were laughing ourselves silly and having the best time. And I just had this great nostalgia for what I had lost, for who I had been, and wanting that back. It's like I wanted true friendship, not this fake stuff based on, you know, which, which house you're in and how you dress and who you're dating. It was, just, it was nonsense. It was superficial. And I, you know, it's just like realizing I was on the wrong path and um, that I wanted to get back. So it was, it was a couple, you know, all these little things piling up. And, um, and then I just, I went, well, I left college. I went away to pharmacy school and met, I'd broken up with this, this awful guy. And I went away to pharmacy school. I met my husband like the, the first day he was the orientation director at the pharmacy school and and he was a christian and he was going to a church and he invited me to go with him and at, at that point i was like yeah I, I need to go back i need to go back and so i started attending church with him so it was, it was definitely a slow thing right um and i wasn't going to church to please him i was going to church because i i wanted to go back and here was a guy who was doing it and it, it helped that it was just, it was a, it was a good time. So I was able to kind of, I eased, it wasn't like a one moment, la, everything's back. I'm back to normal. It was definitely easing into it, back into it. And that was really over the course of four to five years, um, maybe even longer. Because at that point, then I felt unworthy. And (laughs) yeah, so you, you alluded to the fact that you really dealt with some serious shame issues in the years. So what, what would you say to a woman, Sarah, who's dealing with shame today, who she's just ashamed of choices and mistakes mm-hmm. in her past? How would you yeah. encourage her to move beyond the shame? Oh, yeah. And <laughs> I actually have a whole, <laughs> I have a whole workshop on that. And <laughs> I'm trying to recall my, my outline because it was so many years ago I, 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 since I last gave it. But so much of it is like, that's not God's will for us. Um, guilt is given for a reason to to show you your sin so you repent and turn back. That is, that is a good pain. That is the, the pain when you touch the fire. Ow, that hurts. I will pull away from that. Guilt is the same thing. Oh, that is a wrong thing. That's horrible. I need to pull away from that. Shame is, you know, that lingering pain afterwards. You have pulled away. You've regretted it. You've turned away. You've changed your life, you've had God forgive you, you've accepted his forgiveness, and you're still dealing with that, 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 oh, I can't believe, oh, I'm such an idiot to do that. I'm so unworthy. Um, you know, I, I can't teach because I'm a horrible person. If people really knew the real me, they, they wouldn't want me to teach their children. So that, that has no place in it. And God is very clear that he, um, he forgives us for reason. He wants us to move forward. And when we sideline ourselves, we're not doing God's will because he didn't save us so we could sit in the corner and feel sorry for ourselves. Like, oh, you know, you know I, I, I'm, I don't belong on the team. Um, <laughs> like, well, then none of us do because we're all sinners. So he saved us for a purpose. He saved us to go and do good works, whatever those good works are. And if we don't embrace that, then we're disobeying him. So there comes a point where we need to physically, you know, we need to shove off that shame accept the fullness of God's forgiveness, and then move on with our lives so that we can do those things that God wants us to do, whether it's serving in our church, um, you know, fully serving our families, or, or a, a, a big ministry that we need to move forward with our lives and use those 
painful moments. I use them in my writing, use them in my teaching um, to minister to other women who might be dealing with something similar, but we have to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I love what Paul says in Corinthians that he's the God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that we will comfort yeah. others with the same comfort we've received. So everything we go through, if we snuggle up to God, if we stay close to him in our journey, he will use it as a springboard for ministry. Sarah, one of my life sayings is don't waste your pain, but use mm. it as a springboard for ministry. And I see that you have done that in such a beautiful way in your life on different levels as a Sunday school teacher, as ministering to women, and as a writer, you've used your life experiences. So let me ask you this, Sarah. Um, do you have role models? Do you have heroines? Like what women have deeply impacted your life? whether you've met them or not. Oh, yeah, there's so, 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 so many. I, I think of the women who were, um, who ran my church youth group when I was in, in high school. Um, you know, I, I can name them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Maggie Sterling and Debbie Fisher and Janice Larson, they gave to us. And, and I was a nerd girl. I was very unpopular. So to be loved by somebody outside my family was so, so beautiful to me. And then I think of there was one man, I've forgotten her name because these were in my, my college years where I um, didn't want anything to do with God. And there was a woman who came, she was not even a student at my college and she came to my college every week to disciple me. She, she took me out to lunch and she was working through a book with me and I wouldn't read the book. I barely had anything. I don't know why she invested in me, but she did. And I, I, I don't know her name anymore. But I'm so thankful for her. I wish I could find her now and say, <laughs> what you've done is paid off. And I love her example. And then in my church now, I, I, I'm blessed with an amazing church with so many wonderful women who've spoken into my life in so many different ways. You know, from, from, from Janice Fye, who encouraged me to teach. I'm like, oh, no, I can't do that. And Alexia Pretis, who was the same way. It's like, you really should be teaching. I was working in the nursery. You should be teaching elementary school. Would you teach with me? Uh, so there's so, and I, I'm missing so many. And then in the writing world, oh, the writing world is a whole nother category of, of I, I can name dozens of women. And, and that's the beauty of it. Sometimes it's one sentence. Sometimes it's one, there was a woman in my book club who once asked me, I was going through my rejection letter years. And she said, Sarah, what are you afraid of? I, I, and I'm like, I wasn't afraid of, what was I afraid of? And then I had to process her question and realized that there was some fear going on in my life and how that was affecting my actions. And then the next week, another woman in my church asked me the same question, Sarah, what are you afraid of? Worded the exact same way. And just those one sentence and how they worked in my life because they let God speak through me. You know, Sarah, is that here you have this national platform as an author, as an award-winning author, as a best-selling author, and yet the women who have deeply impacted your life, nobody knows them. They're, they're, they're not in anybody's hall of fame but God's. They're not on the front of People magazine. They're not on the ABC Evening News. They're just real women who are living their lives for Christ and his kingdom and they're serving people. Doesn't that give you hope that, oh, yeah. that you don't need to be somebody famous to make a difference in somebody oh, yeah. else's I life? Know. I love that. You know, the one sentence that can change a woman's life. I mean, one sentence spoken in obedience can change a woman's life and you don't know what that woman's going to do, how she's going to affect. And so the ripple effects of, you know, when we obey God, when we allow him to speak through us, 
the ripple effects. And, uh, you know, I'm blessed as a writer to get feedback. I mean, I write novels and I send them out into the void and I hear feedback. And the beauty, and this is one thing I, that's just, I've gotten to know over years teaching and now I see it in my writing too. I speak, I say these words in order and I put them out into the air. God takes those words and he rearranges them and he changes them out and edits them and he inserts them into women's ears or children's ears or into readers' eyes the way he wants them, the message that he has for them. Because I will get, this happened to the very, very first time I spoke and somebody came up to me. She said, Sarah, what you said, and she quoted something, really spoke to me. And I looked at her and, I, and that point, this was my very first thing. So I'm literally reading from my notes. And I'm looking at my notes, and I didn't say that. She says, oh, I heard it very clearly. And it wasn't even like a point that I'd made. It wasn't like she, you know, she said, oh, no, I heard it very clearly. And realizing what had happened, and it was, I had goosebumps. And that was more, that was in a way that was more exciting to me than if, the word, word for word, what I had said had spoken to her it, because I knew that, that God had done something supernatural, but that I was a part of it because my act of obedience in speaking, what God had put on my heart, God was able to use that. And it, it's, it's beautiful and amazing. And I see the same thing in my, my novels. And I'll, I, I see themes arising. I, I have put words on the page. And then I'll hear back from readers going, what you said here really spoke to me. Like, oh, I know that wasn't in the book. <laughs> Okay. Okay. This is a great segue because I want to talk about your books now. I want to talk about Sarah Sundin's books and what you're doing in the world today and in the, the publishing world. So Sarah, you basically, your theme is World War II and the people of World War II. Why, why World War II? Why not the Civil War or the Victorian era? What, what was it about World War II that you just thought, I am landing here and I'm staying here? <laughs> well, you know, it wasn't, you know, it, it, some of these things just kind of developed. But I started there because of family stories. I had actually, my first two novels that I wrote were contemporary. They will never be published. They're really bad. Um, they taught me how to write. So they, I don't they, believe they that, but go ahead. Oh, no. <laughs> No, no, they are, they're really horrible. And I know I'm paraphrasing you, but that's something I think about. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. And those two books that really should never be published served a very good purpose of teaching me how to write. So, but then I came up with this idea and I knew it had to be historical. And I just naturally gravitated toward World War II, mostly because of family stories. My grandfather fought in World War II. His brother was a B-17 bomber pilot. My grandmothers were on the home front. Uh, so I, I grew up hearing these, they were storytellers. And I realized now how rare and wonderful that was that they came home from war and told stories because most men, um, their way of coping with what they'd been through was to not talk about it. And that was a very important, healthy coping mechanism for them. For my grandfather, for my uncle, my great uncle, they coped by talking. And very unusual, but I, I, I was blessed by it because I heard their stories. So I, I, I kind of always had an interest in World War II. So I wrote my first series set in World War II, and I honestly had no plans for the future. But then doing the research for one of the books came up with another idea. And then when you get two series into it, you start to get branded a little bit. But at that point, it was okay because I was all in. And the more I kept researching, more story ideas came to me. And 
And one of the reasons I have camped there is because of the richness of the era for a novelist. There is so much drama. There is so much, there's so many stories of daring. And there's this strange romance to the era because, you know, you don't, I mean, this is the era of the Holocaust. You know, men were going off to die, but there's a romance to it because men and women who were, who never would have met in their ordinary lives did meet. And there was a certain wistfulness as, you know, as he's going off to war and going into danger, um, you know, they're separated. So it it is a time of, in history where romance has developed. So for a romantic writer like I am, it, it really has been just um, lots of stories. <laughs> well, I, I have your most recent book right here. Um, when Twilight Breaks. It came out in early February and I read it very fast. It, it was not a, it was a rich read, but um, stayed up late at night reading it. And Sarah, when I read this book, of course, I loved the heroine, Evelyn Brand. What a significant woman she was. But Sarah, when I read this book, um, When Twilight Breaks, I couldn't help be struck by is history repeating itself? Like, what do you think about that phrase? Does history repeat itself or not? What do you yeah, think? I, yeah. Um, yes and no. Obviously, okay. there are differences, but but themes repeat and movements repeat. And in that in this case, and yeah, I as I was re, I was doing my research for this book, I kept running up to my husband and pointing to something in a book, right? Look. This, this is just like, this is just like today. This is just like today. And it was a little bit terrifying, but the the 30s were a time of, the, the novel set in 1938, before World War II, great time of upheaval. And there were riots and strikes and extremism and division. And that's what really struck me. And the polarization and the demonization. And that's, and the more polarized we get, the more we demonize each other. And that's, that's what we saw in the thirties and people being told, and you know, five to 10 years ago, I, I would see this in the thirties. And what happened in the thirties was basically saying, you have to choose between communism and fascism. And I kept saying to myself, well, that's silly. Why would people not realize that there is a middle, middle route where you don't have to choose fascism or, or communism and then getting to our era where it's becoming more and more like that well if you're not a communist then you need to go the fascist route oh if you're not a fascist well you need to go the communist route um you know we, we might put different names on them um and clean them up because you know those are you know bad names historically but we're we're going to the same route and then if you're on this side you call those people evil and if you're on this side you call those people evil and they're not human and you're not human well the next step to dehumanizing people is to to um, silencing them, and then obviously, as we saw in the Holocaust, to killing them. If their lives don't matter, if they aren't human, if they are horrible people, then they deserve to die, and the world is a better place off without them. So that's, so, you know, seeing where we are, the, the potential is there. I'm not saying another Holocaust is coming, because, uh, first of all, it would be different. We're in a different era. Um, but the, the roots are there. And people who've studied genocides in the past see the roots in American society today. And it has to do with the polarization and pushing further and further to extremes and looking down at other people. So no matter which side we're on, we have to be very, very careful um, to see the other side as human and to, to pull away from the extremes. 
okay, that's good. To see the other side as human and to pull away from extremes. You know, Sarah, when we were in the last presidential election, which we're only a few months removed from right now as we're recording this, I decided to look in the Bible and see what Jesus did when he was faced with a political conversation, because Mm. he was, okay? And, And it seems to me that every time somebody tried to get him to talk politics, he turned it toward the kingdom, right? So I think that that's a good thing for us to remember. When somebody tries to get our, which I have political views, you have political views, but the stabilizing, the center of us is our kingdom views to turn conversations back to what's in the kingdom of God. I keep saying that Jesus gave us the great commission. He did not give us the great campaign. Wow. I'm not saying we shouldn't be involved in politics. Right. Should, but that is not our focus. Our, we are not going to save the world by putting the right person in office right. or the right people in office. Right. right. Our role, if we want to save people, is to preach the gospel and to teach others to preach the gospel. That you go and make disciples, teach people, um, baptize people. That's what Jesus told us to do by changing hearts, by letting, by when God changes hearts, then the world changes. So that is how we should be our primary purpose. In if we see evil in the world, we want to change it. Great. Preach the gospel. God will change hearts. God will change behavior. We shouldn't be focusing on the behavior. We should be focusing on the hearts and, um, preaching through those hearts. Amen. I, I talk to young moms all the time. And one thing I always say to them, Sarah, is what happens at your street address is infinitely more important than what's happening at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on Wall Street, Buckingham Palace, or the United Nations. What's happening at your street address matters. Wow, I hope that you are enjoying listening to the wealth of knowledge and wisdom that Sarah is sharing with us today. I am humbled, challenged, and honestly called to be more like Jesus as I listen to the truth of Sarah's heart. I just wanted to take a minute and thank you for listening to this podcast. I know that there are many wonderful podcasts that you could be listening to, many incredible blogs that you could be reading, and many other valuable streams of wisdom in which you could be waiting. And so I want you to know that I never take you, my listener and my friend, for granted. You are important to me and to this ministry. As a matter of fact, I'd love to hear from you. If you have a prayer request or a comment, please feel free to email me at carol at carolmccloudministries.com. We certainly try to answer every single email that comes our way. Did you know that I have a new book coming out in April of 2021? It's a book that has long lived in the recesses of my heart, and now at last it has been written and published. The title is The Rooms of a Mother's Heart, and it is my gift, my personal gift to the next generation of mothers. The Rooms of a Mother's Heart is rich in wisdom. It's filled to overflowing with heartfelt stories and has been branded with the joy of this wonderful and miraculous calling of motherhood. You can pre-order your copy of The Rooms of a Mother's Heart 
at our website, which is carolmccloudministries.com or on Amazon or Christian book distributors. Let me just say, it would make a wonderful Mother's Day gift for all of the moms in your life. But now, let's get back to my conversation with Sarah Sundin. Okay, so let me ask you another question about writing, about writing novels, historical novels. What is the mark of an extraordinary piece of historical fiction? Is it characters? Is it conversation? Is it setting? What is the one thing that just smacks of greatness when you read or write a historical novel? Yes. <laughs> and honestly, um, it, it is all of the above. Um, it, for, I believe that good historical fiction must be rooted in, in truth, in good research in history. Um, I see no need to make things up historically. Yes, I'm, characters are made up. Certain situations are made up. But I see no need to um, ch- alter history because it, history is so rich. Um, so, yes, I believe that good historical research and showing light, you know, showing what happened in the past, that is a hallmark of historical, good historical fiction. But it also needs the characters. The character, the character is the heart of any story. And when you think about your favorite book, it's, it's not usually the setting that pops up. It's the characters that stay with you. And so you need the great characters. But you also need a setting that's well described, and which is part part of the era and the research. And but most of all, you need a, a plot, a, sto- a story that's going to carry them through. Um, you know, the the historical background is the playground for them, and these are the characters. But what's their game that they're playing on that playground? So you really need all of those elements and um, a theme that arises, a theme that arises naturally from those things that we're not forcing on them. Like I'm going to write a book about abortion and how evil it is. Well, that's not going to be a good book because you're, you're writing a book about the evils of abortion. But if you write it, if you, if your character comes to your heart about a woman who struggled with her past and how she's going to come through it. Now that can be a very powerful novel where it's coming from the characters in the story rather than from, I'm going to write about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all those things working together in harmony. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I love it. I have an aunt who loves historical fiction and she uses it as tools of evangelism. She'll say to me, Carol, one of my friends is going through a divorce. What, what good fiction book could we give them that deals with divorce or a wayward child or whatever it is? Because those books speak to people's hearts more than preaching might from time to time, just a story. Okay. Let me ask you this, Sarah, who is your favorite author? It goes back to your question about the heroines that I named like, um, it's the same thing. Um, I I have so, 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 so many. And, and then the other danger is that now that I, I am in the writing community and I know so many of them as very dear friends that when I get this question, it's like, ah, I don't want to forget somebody. It's like, she forgot my name. I'm not her best friend. I can't invite her to a birthday party. So I'm very hesitant to, to, um, to answer that question. Um, a, a, a simple question, but an answer, but it's also kind of a hedge, but um, going to my, my blog and I review books that I love and um, there uh, you will find a couple dozen authors that I, I keep refer- coming back to 
because I love their stories so much. So they're, the quality of historical fiction in the Christian market is, is, is extremely high and some beautiful, beautiful books coming out. So it's a, it's a great time to be a historical fiction author. Yeah. And let me just say amen to what you said, because so often when I'm looking for a new read or a new author, I do go to who you've recommended. Oh, well, uh, if you. you say, oh, Ben, this was a great book. I think, well, Sarah, if Sarah said that, I'm probably going to like it. So, oh, so yeah. So people do take your advice, Sarah, on what to read. At least this girl does. <laughs> so tell us, tell us what's coming out next year and then tell us what you're working on right now. Can, can you give us a peek into the future? Okay, yeah. good. Um, so my novel that comes out next year is set in Paris in 1941. And um, like when, when Twilight Breaks um, follows Americans living in Nazi Germany in 1938 before the war, um, this next novel features two Americans who are in Paris, Nazi-occupied Paris, before Pearl Harbor. So America was still neutral. So Americans were free to move around and conduct business and live their lives. And there were a couple thousand Americans who stayed in Paris after the Nazis came. Amazing. And they, each of their stories is individual. Why, why, would they, why would you stay? They all had their reasons. So I have two people who have very good reasons to stay. And um, one is a, a, a bookstore owner, and she is staying. Well, she, she bought the store so that the owners who were Jewish could leave. And so she's used up her savings. So she can't go home, but she's determined to save the store so her friends come back. The store will be waiting for them. And the other is a businessman who wants to leave. He's a new widower, and he wants to take his little girl and go home. And the U.S. Army asks them to stay because the, there's information that he will get by working with, he's a, he runs a, um, a factory and the Germans will be buying from him. The information he gets from them would be very useful to the U.S. Army. So, <laughs> so they both have good reasons to stay. <laughs> and what's the name of that book going to be? Um, we don't know yet. So don't know yet. Okay. Yeah, I'll find out in June, July. So do you choose your titles or does your publisher or is it a tandem effort? Yes. Um, I fill out a questionnaire. Um, I give them my working title and um, I give them a a bunch of other title ideas that I don't like as much. And then I throw out some words that you could use or topics. And uh, I give them some imagery that's used in the book. And then they come back with, with a title. And, and if I don't like it, then my agent and I come together with a reason we don't like it. I mean, there's some back and there's, there's some negotiation involved. Um, there, my Revell is my publisher and they're really wonderful about working with me to find a title that, that I love. Ultimately they have the, the final authority. It's, um, they're the ones publishing it. Same with the cover, but they're really wonderful about working with me, getting covers and titles that that we love. And they've, they've yeah, I've loved everything they've done. So. Yeah, well, I've I've loved everything they've done too. Um, and my process is very similar to that too. I'll come up with a. I don't write fiction. I I write more inspiration, Christian living, and when you're working on a title as I always like to say, sometimes they win and sometimes I win, but the best title is usually a compromise when yes. we can both say, aha, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, it's time for us to close. I can't believe it, Sarah. It went so fast, but I've always remembered the final words that my dad said to me before I left for college. And to this day, I hold them close to my heart. Um, what are the final words that you would like to say to the listeners today? Just that when they think about Sarah Sundin, the mom, the wife, um, 
the novelist, the teacher, the, the strong believer in Christ, what, what are the words you'd like to leave with the listeners today? Well, there's a saying um, historical novelists have, which says it's all research. So basically every experience you have gone through can become fodder for a novel. And, you know, everything, like if I fell and broke my wrist, I'm experiencing the, the pain. And I was with a, a novelist when it happened. It's like, wow, Melanie, I can use this in my next book. I've all the physical, <laughs> she's like, it's all research. So, so, but that goes to the whole theme of life. It's like nothing is wasted. It's all research. It's all can be good. God can redeem everything and use everything. All the pain, all the stupidity, all the the, the places where we have erred, all the area, areas where we have actually stepped forward and done something and, and succeeded, or we've stepped forward in good faith and failed. All of those, none of those are wasted. Oh, every stupid word you say to your kids and go, oh my gosh, I've broken them. All those things, everything in life, God can use that. It's not wasted. So you can use that whether you're teaching or whether you're letting it soften your heart or whether you're um, raising your children or being a good wife to your husband or ministering in your community. However, you use all that, everything in your life can be used for good. God for good. He can. You know, it's it's one of the things he does best is to use everything for good. I love it. Well, Sarah, before we close today, would you feel comfortable praying for the listeners who've been with us today and, and just praying a prayer blessing over them? Sure. Okay. Dear Lord, thank you so much for, for Carol and her ministry to all her listeners. And we I thank you for every woman who's listening today. And I thank you that you've created them to be significant, that you've created them for good works, and that you have created them with flaws, and that you have held back your hand and allowed them to sin. Because, Lord, you can use that. You can use their past. You can use their present for a greater future. And I just pray that you be with each of these women and that you would shape them, and you would allow your word to seep into their hearts, and that they would use it and use everything that you've given them for greater good, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Sarah. I've loved talking to you today. Thank you for having me. I hope that Sarah's story and her heart will remind you of the power of one changed life. When Sarah was a rebellious college student, she had no idea of how God was going to use her in a generation of women. I also hope that with Sarah and with me, you will begin to dream big dreams and commit all of your talents to the unshakable kingdom of God. Listen, If you're struggling with finding your place in life, I'd love to hear from you. I'm not a counselor, but I am an encourager. Feel free to email me at carol at carolmccloudministries.com so I can personally encourage you in your walk of faith. My friend, if you're listening today, let me remind you of your significance to the kingdom of God. You are not overlooked and you are not forgotten but you are his. 
It is in belonging to our Creator and to our Savior that we will find true and lasting significance. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that we have been born at this moment in history to make a difference for Christ in his kingdom. Lord, for those who are listening today and who are struggling with calling or with purpose, Father, I pray that you would drop a nugget of wisdom in their hearts right now. Father, I pray that you would remind each person listening of the calling, of the inescapable calling on their life. Lord, we love you and we love serving you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, thank you for listening to the Significant Women podcast. You, my friend, are a significant woman indeed.